Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We're continuing this morning a series in the book of First Peter, and uh, so uh, we've been looking uh, in this series at the hope that we have as Christians, uh, the hope that we have uh, living, as Peter calls us, aliens and strangers uh, in this world, exiles. And so uh, this morning we look at our reading from First Peter chapter 4. Our reading today is from First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of God, of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks so much, Haley. Well, our passage this morning uh, brings us to a topic that most of us would rather avoid, uh, the topic of suffering, uh, trials, as Peter calls them here. Uh, But uh, the reality is that uh, suffering is a part of our lives that pain is a part of our lives, that trials are a part of our lives. Even though we seek to avoid it, we seek to uh, ignore it, distract ourselves, we live our lives in order to maximize our own happiness and to avoid suffering. And we certainly don't want to talk or think about it when we're not suffering. We want to ignore it and pretend that it won't come. As a result, there may not have ever been another people in the history of the world more in need of Peter's rejoinder here, his reminder, that we should not be surprised by suffering as though something strange were happening, as he puts it in verse 12. There may not be another group of people in history that are more uh, prone to being surprised by suffering as though it were something odd or unusual. Because unlike most other humans throughout most of the rest of history, uh, we are somewhat able to insulate ourselves from it, to keep death and suffering and warfare and famine, sickness and death at a distance from ourselves. So that when it comes, it does feel like an invasion into our lives. It feels shocking and surprising. But in our passage today, we'll see three things that we shouldn't be surprised by suffering, that we don't have to be destroyed by suffering because we belong to one who loves us and who suffered for us. 
First off, we don't have to be surprised by suffering. In ways that few other humans in history could grasp, our lives are largely insulated against not only death, but suffering, pain, and even inconvenience. You know, through most of human history, sickness and death didn't happen in hospitals or in assisted living facilities. They happened in our homes. They happened in our living rooms. They happened right in front of us. And yet we are largely able to keep this at bay. We're largely able to live our lives free of inconvenience even. I was complaining to someone just the other day about how annoying that I think it is when I'm wearing a mask, which we've gotten used to doing when we're out and about. I was complaining that it's annoying when I have a mask that my cell phone's facial recognition software doesn't catch my face. And so I have to be inconvenienced by manually entering and unlocking my cell phone code, right? This is, uh, this is not suffering. <laughs> this is a first world problem if ever there was one. And yet our lives are so cushioned, so convenient that even that little bit uh, becomes an annoyance. This is really in, in many ways the fulfillment of the dream of modernism. The, the movement that's uh, possessed the Western world since the 18th century, the belief that through human reason and progress uh, and technological advancement that we would be able to delay death, forestall sickness, eliminate suffering, eliminate injustice, eliminate poverty, eliminate war. It's this optimism that within us we have the ability to minimize and even to eliminate suffering. But of course, the sad story of the 20th century shows us that we're not entirely able through all of our human progress to keep the brokenness of the world at arm's length, right? In some ways, human progress led directly to the concentration camps and the gulags and the wars and the famines that we've experienced uh, in the last 100 to 150 years. Though human progress uh, can, in so many ways, make our lives easier, it cannot eliminate the brokenness of our lives, of our souls, and of our world. To live in a broken world is to suffer. And one reason that we're surprised by suffering is that we so easily forget what kind of world we live in. The kind of world uh, that the Bible presents us with, a world that was made good and beautiful and right a world that was made for human flourishing with God and with one another, but that's been broken, horribly broken by sin so that now death intrudes on us as a part of our lives in this world and a part of growing towards maturity and letting the Bible shape our imagination and our view of the world is to come to terms with a world in which we shouldn't be surprised by suffering where we should be while we mourn it and lament, we shouldn't be surprised by cancer and poverty and injustice and hunger and hurricanes and earthquakes. We should mourn them, we should lament them. We shouldn't be surprised by them. But Peter's focused here on something more specific than just the general uh, experience of suffering in a broken world. He's focused quite specifically, not on general sufferings, but on the particular trials that come with being a Christian in the world. The unique kind of suffering that his readers were going through. 
because of the fact that their faith put them at odds with their neighbors. Remember, he's called them exiles, right? They live in a world in which they are a minority population in a city or in cities uh, that didn't hold their values, that didn't follow their ethics, where they were viewed as strange and even outcasts by their society, by their rulers, and by their neighbors. And so Peter says, friends, don't be surprised when you suffer for bearing the name of Jesus. And we can see why they might have been surprised. Think about uh, what Peter has told them already at this point in his letter. Right, that they've been born again to a living hope, that they bear the power of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in them. He's called them a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people of God's own possession. Right, He's, he's given them these exalted and glorious promises about who they are. That is, as the followers of the ascended king of the universe, that they are on the side of the God who's overcoming the world. And yet, their experience in their life is one of suffering. It's one of exclusion. It's one, sometimes, of poverty and mocking and being despised. And so you could see why they might legitimately be surprised. Peter, if you said that we were this royal priesthood, this holy nation, that we were on the right side with God, then why are we suffering in this way? Why do we experience this tension with our neighbors? And why do we often suffer for it? And Peter's saying to them, don't be surprised by this. This was the posture of Israel among her neighbors in the Old Testament. And this is and will be the posture of the church in the world, that we live as a people who live for the well-being of the world, and yet oftentimes misunderstood by that world, feeling not quite at home. This is, uh, for many of us, a newly dawning uh, realization in the United States, right? Often in our nation, uh, it's been more difficult to distinguish between the values of the church and the world. That it's been easy to assume that the church and the society bear the same values. They were moving in the same direction. And yet increasingly, at least for the last 60, or, uh, 60 years or so, the church and the world, the church uh, in our nation and our culture have felt this drifting apart. Where increasingly we feel what it feels like to live as strangers and aliens to the world. And Peter would say that while there's something to be lamented in this, right, because the church has sought to, uh, to pursue the good of the broader society and culture, there's something to be lamented in a declining alignment. But Peter would also say, friends, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by this. That to be one who bears the name of Jesus means at times to be the ones who suffer exclusion in our pursuit of following Jesus for the life of the world. So we shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves where we have to bear some consequence for following Jesus in our, in our careers, in our finances, in our dating prospects, in our academic advancements, that some of these things might be uh, might pay a cost because of the way that we live as followers of Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. 
We're surprised, I think, by the suffering because we forget often that in significant ways, the ways of Jesus are against the ways of the world. And that as we come to follow him, that we'll become different. Paul uh, tells us that we're not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as this happens, we'll find ourselves more and more uh, uniquely uh, out of step in some ways with the ways of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a martyr of the 20th century under Nazi Germany, wrote this, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Right, that you know you're following in the footsteps of our suffering Savior when you find yourself suffering. Certainly, he experienced that as his nation, Germany, in the early 20th century went further and further down the path of death, racial pride, prejudice, murder. And so he urges us to be willing to bear the badge of suffering as a disciple of Jesus. And then I love this. I love what Peter does in verse 15. After saying we shouldn't be surprised, but we should be willing uh, to suffer as followers of Jesus, he goes on to say in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I remember the old Sesame Street game. Three of these things belong together. One of these things just doesn't belong, right? We can see suffering as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer. Right, So we think that Peter's listing out here three things that people might expect to meet with government uh, consequences for, right? that you would expect to receive justice if you are a murderer, or if you're a thief, or if you're a doer of evil. And he says, don't suffer for those reasons, right? There's no good to be had in suffering for suffering's sake if you're suffering for, for doing something wrong. But then he adds this fourth one, don't suffer as a meddler. As far as we know, this is the only use of this particular Greek war, uh, word. Uh, in uh, It's certainly the only use of it in the New Testament. We don't actually have uh, records of it being used anywhere else. Uh, this is uh, Peter's word. And the word that's translated, uh, the ESV here went with meddler, uh, is literally translated in the Greek, a strange overseer, alapiskopos. Episcopos is that word uh, which we get our word overseer. Uh, It's the word that our Episcopalian brothers and sisters get the word Episcopal, bishop, out of. It's it's the overseer. It's the role of the church leader uh, who looks out over uh, those who are in his charge to make sure that they're living and keeping as followers of Jesus and to protect them. And yet, by combining it with this this, uh, this prefix to make it a strange overseer, Peter gives the notion of don't be persecuted for someone who's taken on the role of being an overseer over people who you don't have any right to oversee. Don't be an uninvited bishop, an uninvited overseer in someone else's life. Recent surveys, this comes as no surprise, I think, to anyone, but recent surveys of those who uh, are outside the church, who don't identify as Christians, when asked to describe uh, what they think of Christians in the church, the number one, uh, actually, I'll say there's two words that come up over and over again. One, and I don't think they'll surprise any of us. Uh, the first is hypocritical, right? Their lives don't match uh, their professed beliefs. And the second is judgmental, right? That they look out with a harsh standard of judgment on the world 
around us, that we've taken on the po- this posture of being a strange overseer in the lives of our neighbors, an uninvited authority figure in their moral and ethical lives. And Peter's essentially saying, look, there's no honor in suffering for being a judgmental jerk. Right? There's some honor in, in suffering if it's because of the, how the transformation of your own inner life puts you at odds with those around you. But there's no honor in suffering for being a jerk. And sometimes, if we're honest, that's why Christians feel at odds with the world. Because we've taken onto ourselves this posture of being the moral referee of our neighbors. And so Peter says, don't suffer for being a meddler. This is one of the earliest objections that Christians faced. Uh, One of the the first century uh, opponents of Christianity, a man named Celsus, wrote this of Christians. If all men wanted to be Christians, the Christians would no longer want them. What he's saying is that the Christians are this group of people who, in his mind at least, have defined themselves more by who they're not than who they are more by what they're against than by what they're for, more for what they resist than by how they love. Theologian Miroslav Volf uh, contrasts this with the posture of Peter in 1 Peter. I'll quote Volf here. He says, 1 Peter consistently establishes the difference positively and not negatively. We expect injunctions to reject the ways of the world, but instead we find admonitions to follow the path of Christ. First Peter is not a manifesto against the world. Peter shows no interest in condemning the world. His concern is to help the world. The issue for Peter is not how bad the world is, but how good the Christian ought to be. When Peter says, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul in 1 Peter chapter 2, the force of the injunction is not, do not be as your neighbors are, but do not be as you were. Wolf points out here that Peter's posture is for his neighbors, for the world. He's encouraging his Christians uh, in in the, the churches that he's writing to take a posture of servant love towards the world to be exacting on themselves and their own inner life, their own moral life, their own following of Jesus, and to be gracious towards their neighbor. And so we shouldn't be surprised when legitimate suffering comes. But secondly, we don't have to be destroyed by this suffering. The major metaphor that Peter is working with in this passage is the metaphor of suffering being like what he calls a fiery trial. He's using the language here of a refiner's fire. He's brought it up earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, when he says that your faith is revealed to be more precious than gold tested by fire. And here he likens suffering to being a purifying fire in the life of the Christian community. The way that, uh, that heat works in the purification of metal is that ore goes into the refiner's fire. And it goes in as a mix of different metals, some precious and some waste. And as they melt at different heat points, they become separated. So the fire tests what's enduring and precious, the metals like gold that are meant to come out of the fire. And those that aren't are cooked away. In the same way, he says that the fire of suffering will either 
destroy you or refine you. It'll either destroy you or transform you, taking away everything out of you that needs to pass away so that what's good and honoring and Christ-like can come out. That the fires of suffering, the fires of mourning and temptation and trial are made not to destroy us, but to transform us. He's using this language that the fire of God's judgment can either destroy you or transform you. And what makes the difference in this is whether or not you are in Christ by faith, whether or not you belong to him by faith. Peter's saying in this metaphor, look, every single one of our hearts is a mixture, right? My heart is a mixture of good motives and bad. My, ho- my heart is a mixture of my affections for God and, and his love for me, as well as my affections for less noble things. Then my life is marked by a loyalty to God, yes, but also these other loyalties to things like my own comfort, my own wealth, my own pleasure, my own accumulation of goods, my own appearance, my own reputation. Then my heart is a mix of motives, righteous and unrighteous. And so is yours. Right? We know that our motives are always mixed. Our hearts are always mixed. And the great hope of suffering is that suffering, like metal into a refiner's fire, separates out and pulls away from us some of those less noble motives, some of those sinful motives that infect our hearts. All of us have things that we think that we could not bear to lose, right? That if I lost blank, then my life would not be worth living. If I lost my job, if I lost my money, if I lost my health, then my life would not be worth living. And yet, friends, the suffering of this world can separate us from all of those things. Right? Your health is momentary. You will be separated from your wealth by death. Even your closest relationships you can lose in this life. And suffering separates for us our heart's attachment to that thing that we cannot lose in Christ and all of those lesser things that we can lose. Suffering sorts out the allegiances of our hearts. It reveals ourselves to ourselves. Right? We say uh, when everything is happy and fine that we would never sacrifice our family health to our careers. But then in the press, when you have a boss who's demanding more and more work out of you, longer hours, working weekends, and you find yourself further and further from your family, in the moment of that temptation, the loyalty of your hearts are revealed. We say we would never uh, date or marry someone with whom we don't share the deepest loyalties of our hearts, our faith. And yet when we find ourselves deeply attracted uh, to someone who doesn't, then that temptation starts to reveal right, the, the true direction and loyalty of our hearts. We say that we recognize uh, that money is an insufficient source of security. And that we attach our hearts not to to earthly wealth, but to spiritual wealth. And yet, in in what we've just lived through, and in many ways are living through, through the downturn of the economy, when we watch our wealth deplete, it presses on that, doesn't it? 
And so suffering reveals the loyalty of our hearts. It reveals ourselves to ourselves. And Peter says this metaphor of fire is a metaphor for God's judgment. But that in Christ, God's judgment doesn't destroy you. It's not the the wrathful judgment of a judge, right? All of that has been poured out on Jesus. He has taken the wrath of God for us. The New Testament uses different metaphors for God's, uh, for the suffering that Christians go through. It's not the wrath of God, but it's the discipline of a loving father, as the author of Hebrews puts it. It's the pruning of a gardener tending his vine, as Jesus puts it in John 15. It's the training of a coach on an athlete, as again the author of Hebrews puts it. Right, that it's, it's discipline for our good for our transformation, for our wholeness. C.S. Lewis uses this metaphor in Mere Christianity, the metaphor of God uh, renovating a house, which represents us. Lewis writes, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what He is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. The metaphor Lewis uses is that God's remodeling of our lives, his renovation of our lives, is more painful than we ever could imagine. Right? If you knew at the beginning when you placed your faith in Jesus that it would entail all that it has, giving up some of what he's asked you to give up mourning some of what you've been asked to mourn, overcoming some of the the sin that you didn't even know was sin in your life at the time. But that it's a remodeling, a remaking for our good. It's the discipline of a father, the pruning of a gardener. And though it hurts, it's for our beautification. Friends, we are going through now uh, a time of corporate trial and suffering. Right? Chelsea mentioned it uh, at the beginning in her prayer. Kyle mentioned it in his prayer. Right, That during these most recent months, we have together been going through a period of suffering, which is unusual. Right, Typically in our life together as a church, even just our church over the six short years we've been together, normally we suffer uh, more or less individually. Right, A member loses a family member. A member gets diagnosed with an illness, and we come around that member to offer some Uh, some encouragement and grace. But now we find ourselves as a place where as a church, we're going through a period of trial and suffering. And not just as our church, but the church in the world is dealing with this pressure that's being put on us, right? By the pandemic, by some of the social unrest and by some of the political uh, polarization that we've gone through, right? We feel in our bones the trial that we've gone through, that we are in. And yet Peter says something that I think is helpful for us. Verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What Peter's doing here in combining uh, this, uh, this metaphor of refining with this notion that it has to start with the refining of the household of God is that he's picking up uh, one of the major themes of the Hebrew prophets, particularly the book of Malachi, uh, picks up this idea that because the, the worship of the temple had been corrupted, that God had to begin his work of saving the whole world with refining the worship of the temple. That from there, he would refine the corruption uh, of the priesthood, the corruption of temple worship. And that from there, from that refinement, that Israel would then be what they were meant to be, a light to the nations. And that from there, the world would come to see their light. And so when Peter says, right, that now the refining work of trial and suffering starts with the household of God, with the royal priesthood that he's, that he's described. He's saying that God is doing his pruning work, his trying work with the church for the sake of the world. That we together are going through this period of testing in the confidence that this testing will not destroy us, but purify us. That it will be the pruning of our vine by a loving gardener. That it will be the discipline of children by a loving father, in Lewis's metaphor, that we are being renovated and remade. And so let's be for one another in this. Let's pray for one another and for our church and for the church in the world that God would do not his destructive work, but his purifying work in the difficulty of these trials. And then finally, all of this, we can take comfort in suffering because we belong to the one who loves us, and to the one who suffered for us. Peter writes, verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying your suffering is a sharing in the suffering of Jesus. He goes on at the start of, of chapter 5 to say that he is an eyewitness of Christ's suffering. Right? Remember, this is the Apostle Peter who saw Jesus weep in Gethsemane, who saw him die on Calvary's cross. And he said, your suffering is simply a participation in his suffering. You bear his name. You belong to him. He is yours and you are his. And no suffering, no persecution, no mocking in this life can separate you from Jesus. The great confession of faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, puts it this way. It asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own. But I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. You belong, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's put his seal on you by his spirit and nothing can take you from his hand. Friends, that's our hope in this long trial that we're in, that you belong to Jesus. He is yours and you are his now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, the trials and sufferings of this life are hard. We feel uh, how ill at ease we often are at this world. We feel uh, the sting of what it is to be laughed at for our beliefs, uh, to know what it is, uh, to feel an alien and a stranger in this world. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would help us, that you would do your refining work in our hearts, strip away our lesser loves, uh, so that our heart uh, might find its fullness as we rest in you. Lord Jesus, we ask you, uh, particularly uh, for those who are suffering in our midst these days, for the sick, for the mourning, for the grieving, for the nervous, for the anxious. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would be near to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.